You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us for the first On the NBA Beat episode of 2018. I'm your host, Lauren Lee Chen, and today I'll be going one-on-one with Jordan Malley as we belatedly ring in the new year with an episode talking about the Chicago Bulls, who've had an interesting first half of the season, to say the least. Jordan hosts the Locked on Bulls podcast, covers the Bulls for FanRag Sports, and also covers college basketball for SB Nation and the Fansided Network. He's also a huge music junkie. Since he started tracking when he was 16, he's seen between 200 and 250 different artists and bands live from genres ranging from hip-hop to heavy metal. Hey Jordan, great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. There's a lot of things to talk about today. Has this been the most eventful few months in recent memory for the Bulls? I think that's, it's kind of hard to play that, especially what's been going on with the Bulls, even just over the last, I would say, two years. You think about, you think back to what Butler and Rondo and Wade did all last year, sort of how that story brewed and just all all the little sub stories that had gone into that season from Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler taking a stance after the Atlanta Hawks game and kind of splitting that locker room to Rajon Rondo's Instagram posts to trading away Doug McDermott and Taj Gibson for basically nothing to Rondo putting a show on for the first two games in the playoffs and then losing four straight. Like there was just, there's so many stories in 2017 for the Bulls that categorize them as kind of a dysfunctional headline running team. And then you get the Jimmy Butler trade in the summer and you think things are going to transition. The Bulls might be getting off the radar for a little while. Then you get the Bobby Portis and Nico Miritich fight and lands the Bulls right back in the mix of basically being a headline story for the next four, six weeks till Nico and Bobby both come back. But it's definitely been eventful, like watching the Chicago Bulls, the way this team has evolved, has basically flipped scripts, um, watching some of the young guys come in. And it's it's been a whirlwind. I would say probably if I had to pick between either this season or last season is more eventful. I would probably say in terms of headlines, Butler, Wade, Rondo being in Chicago for a year and having that whole mess was probably a, a ton more of a headlines in terms of negativity than it was. But there's been a lot of headlines for the Bulls too this season as well, like with a lot of the positivities from the young guys. So it's been definitely interesting covering the team um, over the last, even I would say even the last two years. Yeah, to be honest, I totally forgot about all the locker room stuff that happened last season. Mm -hmm. Last season just feels like an eternity ago. But let's start off just by reflecting on the trade that you mentioned that sent Jimmy Butler to the Timberwolves and brought back Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, and a draft pick that became Laurie Markkinen. How's your perception of that return evolved as you've seen the season progressing? I think at the time of the trade, a lot of reporters were pretty much panning it pretty widely, but now it's possibly looking better and better. Yeah, I think this trade in the summer when Butler was dealt, 
the immediate overwhelming reaction was that the Bulls got screwed, that the Bulls didn't get enough back for him, that the Timberwolves basically snaked Jimmy Butler and that number 16 pick in the draft. I think people were very overreactionary, which is it's sort of the it's sort of the timeline of our times right now is like people are just so quick to react to what they see immediately and how they feel immediately and taking instead of taking a step back and really looking at the situation evaluating the situation and understanding the pieces that you would get back in a trade like this you've seen it like i mean you could even look at the paul george trade too like people were so overactionary about the paul george trade with victor oladipo and demonis sabonis going to indiana that it ends up turning out that it worked in both of their favors. Like OKC got what they wanted. Indiana got what they wanted. Victor Oladipo is playing amazing. In that same turn with the Bulls, the Bulls seemingly got what they wanted. The Timberwolves got what they wanted. So in terms of people talking about, you know, the Bulls either winning this trade or the Timberwolves winning this trade, I get that a lot. And it's like to understand that, I would say, you know, both teams can win this trade. I don't think one team snaked another team in this deal. I think the Timberwolves got exactly what they wanted. Tom Thibodeau got Jimmy Butler. That was his prize piece. He wanted Jimmy Butler to be there. The Bulls in turn, like the front office had said for a long time, that they were trying to get a head start on this rebuild. And for a lot of Bulls fans, we didn't have trust in the front office, didn't have trust in what they were saying or what they were trying to build. But now, slowly over this season, Lowry Markinen has turned into a viable piece and somebody that looks like one of the best rookies out of this class. He's been complimented by some of the best stars in the NBA in terms of his game, the way he works, how hard he's working. Right now, if the season ended, you know, if we fast forwarded two or three months to the end of the season, Lowry Markkinen is on pace to finish as the, uh, to have the single most three pointers in franchise history in one single season. So that's kind of a little tidbit about Lowry Markkinen. Chris Dunn, I think has been the, the most phenomenal part of this three piece trade. He's gotten his confidence back from when he played at Providence and what the front office really liked about Chris Dunn and when they wanted to draft him two years ago at the number five pick and they couldn't pull a deal off for Butler then. He's somehow, some way, the, between the front office, the players, and the coaches have grabbed Chris Dunn and pulled the confidence that he had back in college back to his game now. And it's turning into something that could be a budding superstar. And then you add the most important piece that everybody thought was going to be the number one piece of this deal in Zach Levine. And like you had said, we just saw him on Saturday. I think he personally, I think he's going to be another outside of just his basketball, his skill, his personality is huge. And for somebody like that to have a massive personality, a big heart and a guy that is favorable in in the media and favorable with the fans is going to play really well for the Bulls, no matter what or not, what his ceiling is or not, or if he ever reaches that superstar potential, I think he can be a definite impact player and he can be definite impact person for a Chicago Bulls team that's looking for their sort of superstar. Yeah. And Obviously, the Bulls are easing Levine back in after he missed nearly a full year with an ACL tear that he suffered last season. What were your early impressions of the state of his recovery and his limited minutes in that game on Saturday? I thought for what he played on Saturday, he, you know, his offense came back. His it's it's clear that that was the one sticking point that a lot of people were hoping that when he tore his ACL, he was on the incline. He was averaging anywhere between 18 and 20 points a game. Um, he was knocking down three pointers at, at the highest rate he ever had um, in his two seasons in the NBA. So seeing what the Bulls want to do with him right now, and I think it plays to a lot of the factors of trying to move some of these pieces so the Bulls aren't 
aren't winning games for no reason, basically. Like the front office has said that their goal this year is to be in that top five. They want a top five lottery pick. They've invested a ton of scouting, a ton of time in those top five players, and they they hold a high regard for those top five talents. So in that, I think they've been really careful with what they want from Levine, not only just because He's only 22. He's coming off an ACL injury, and they want to make sure that he'll have longevity and be able to stay healthy. They don't want to. They didn't want to rush him back this season. Um, just from what I saw in one game, and just from the things that I've seen in practice, and you know, videos across everywhere, I think he is a player that the Bulls are going to spend a lot of money this offseason. He's a restricted free agent. He's going to command a ton of money. People are going to be interested in him outside the Bulls. So I'm looking for the Bulls to see what they have in Levine and then the, over these next two months, they're going to evaluate him the best that they can. And then they're going to come up with a number um, in terms of money. But if I had to pick what Levine would be for this team, the ceiling for Levine would be obviously NBA all-star. But do I think right now he's got the ability to be that player? Probably not. I would say he's going to be a very, very, very good piece on a strong contending bulls team, maybe two, three, four years down the road. But um, his defensive inefficiencies, his his defensive weaknesses, I think, kill his game. And that's going to be something interesting to monitor over these next two months or even a year from now is how he develops his game and how he gets better on the defensive end of the ball. If he can get better on the defensive end of the ball, this guy can be a, an elite defender, somebody who can come off in a starting rotation and score anywhere between 16 and 22 points a game. You got yourself a pretty decent shooting guard for the future. And... Going back to talking about Lowry Markkinen for a bit, I think in any other year, probably he'd be you know a leading candidate for Rookie of the Year, at least top two, top three. This year, I think he's gotten a little bit lost in the shuffle with all the other candidates in the race behind Simmons, Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, even sometimes Kyle Kuzma is being mentioned in conversations ahead of Lowry Markkinen. You mentioned that he's on pace to set the Bulls franchise single season record for three-pointers. He's also currently averaging the most three-pointers per game for any rookie in history, slightly above Damian Lillard's current record mark. If you were to project his ideal development for the next few years, what would that look like? Yeah, I think this is this is an interesting point. There's so many different avenues that Lowry Markkinen was projected on that was that were talked about in the way his game was going to translate to the NBA or the ga- the way the NBA was going to eat Lowry Markkinen alive. Like there were so many people just not really sure what he could be. And there was the obvious player comps out there of Dirk Nowitzki and Kristaps Porzingis or even somebody like Pau Gasol or even a Nico Miritich. Uh, those are the guys that Lowry Markkinen was getting a lot of comps for. And I think it's, it's funny when he's asked about his about his player comps, about players that he watched to develop his game over. And he always says he doesn't want to be the next Dirk. There'll never be the next Dirk because Dirk is is far and above anybody else out there. And he said he wants to create his own path. He wants to be his own player. He wants to make his mark as Lowry Markkinen. So in that facet, I think his game, just from a 20-year-old standpoint with his size, his length, I think coming in, we were all really surprised and the expectations were were blown out of the water on his d- defensive side of the ball. Everybody said that, you know, 
Lowry Markkinen is not going to be able to play defense, especially down low against guys. And he's proved people wrong so far this season that the way he moves his feet are, are so quick for a big man of his size and his length and his ability to not give up against guys. Like I go back to the game, even the double overtime win um, just a few nights ago against the Knicks. He pound for pound in that first half was taking Kristaps Porzingis. And like it was it was a show for for the first half. Him and Porzingis were going back to back at one point, seven or eight possessions down the floor. Like Kristaps would hit a shot and then Lowry Markkinen would come down to the offensive end and wart Kristaps Porzingis. I think the confidence in Lowry Markkinen to understand that his game, that he's got the potential to play up against anybody. And I think his confidence is, is oozing right now. And him being a better defender and also being that pure scorer that the Bulls drafted, that was the number one reason why they liked him so much. It's just because he was probably one of the best shooters in that draft class. That's what he was projected at. That's how he was scouted. And to know that his defensive metrics are way better than what they had been projected at a year ago, it's it's incredible to see his development in this game. So if I had to if I had to look at a player like in terms of ceiling or floor for Lowry Markinen. I would say if you can find a a combination of him to be somewhere in the middle between his floor being Nikola Mirotic and his ceiling being Dirk Nowitzki, if you can get something in between there, I mean he could be he could be a dominant player for a long time. And I talked to I talked to my co-host Matt Peck too on Locked On Bulls, and we talked about this too. I said, what's the worst case scenario for Lowry Markin? And if you wanted to look at the glass half empty here, what's the worst case scenario for him that he's He's the third star on your team in terms of a competitive all-star, or is he a guy that comes off at that second unit eventually two, three, four years down the road and is successful with the second unit? And we kind of talked about that. We threw that around there. But I think in terms of understanding his confidence level, um, what he's doing on the defensive side of the ball in terms of exceeding expectations. And another thing I'll said too is look at guys like Giannis and look at guys like Anthony Davis when they came into the league and how skinny they were and Kevin Durant too even. And I said, you know, let's let's take three years. Let's let's wait three years from now and see how much growth, how much strength, how much muscle Lowry Markinen builds up. And I think if he can develop some type of inside game to complement his outstanding three-point shooting, the dude is going to be legit unstoppable mm-hmm. for the future. Yeah, and I know I just asked you the question, but I always return to the point that I think Daryl Morey made where when he's having his team scout draft talent, he tries to refrain from making player comps as much as possible. And especially in this age of, you know, we always talk about unicorns. It's like we have these players that are exceeding all expectations who play like no one who has ever come before them like as you mentioned coming into the league what would we have said would be a player comparison for Giannis Antetokounmpo or like for Kevin Durant there's no one like that that we've ever seen before the other big story that you mentioned that was surrounding the Bulls in the offseason the fight between Bobby Portis and Nikola Meritage that ended with Nico being sent to the hospital with two broken bones in his face and missing the first 23 games of the season I'm sure by now, like covering the Bulls, you've talked about that story to death. But just from your perspective, what was it like covering a team when something like that happens? It's kind of awkward, to be honest with you. It's like you talk to everybody that is with the Bulls every single day. You talk to people that cover the team every single day, and you just try to get different perspectives on how people are feeling after a situation like this happens. How do you cover a story like this? Um, 
And I think the one word to just point it out was is just plain and simple awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation where, you know, you didn't necessarily want to take sides. You didn't want players to take sides. Like the front office had talked about how the team in, as a whole had such a good offseason that they were having such a strong training camp. And it's funny because John Paxson even said in his press conference at media day that Fred Hoiberg had built up an amazing culture over the offseason through training camp that they were finally turning that page of you know needing to set a precedence needing to set a culture and then you get 48 hours before tip off of the opening night and the situation arises I think it was it's a scenario in which this has been building up for a long time Underneath the surface, um, there was some tension between Bobby Portis and Nico Miritich just extending on. And I think this is was just kind of a tipping point between both players. You know, Nico Miritich for the longest try- time trying to take that next step like he has taken since he's come back from the injury um, to be that sort of starting power forward on a team and sort of expand his skills the way that the Bulls thought they were going to get when he came into the league in 2015 when they drafted him in 2011. So it's it's an interesting fight. And at the same time, Bobby Portis was lost last year for the longest time. I mean, there was that story where he played with third degree burns on his foot for the last month and a half of the season and told nobody. And so that's why, like, you go back and look at his stats in that that time where he was trying to figure out how to play center. He he didn't play center a whole lot in college. Um, he was like an explosive offensive player in college. He won SEC freshman of the year. He was first team all SEC at Arkansas. He, the Bulls got him at number 22. He played really well in his rookie year and then fell off last year. So I think there was that competitive edge that just sort of over emulated in practice. And then one thing leads mm-hmm. to another. And there was a quick reactionary thing that happened. And I always talk to this, this too, when people outside of just Chicago, maybe don't understand the background that Bobby Portis came from. And this is why I think it's important to understand where players are coming from, how they react to things, especially just in terms of questions asked in the media, too. So Bobby Portis had a really tough childhood. Like there's a lot of stories out there of NBA players who had tough upbringings that were um, that faced a ton of adversity. We talked about it with Jimmy Jimmy Butler, too, as well. Like his story is amazing as well. And I think people just overpass a lot of these players stories and don't understand where they come from and how things um, how they deal with situations like this. How did how do you deal with conflict res- resolution as a player? And it happens all the time. We talk about it in in business scenarios too, like regular people. But I, I think his background, you co- combine that with the competitive edge that Bobby Portis has, the competitive edge that Nikola Mirotic has. Um, the situation was awkward. And I think the the most bizarre part of this whole story was the fact that they don't speak off the court to each other at all yet they come back and play as the best tandem right now and possibly the best combination the Bulls have right now. When those two are on the floor, the Bulls are so much better, uh, infinitely better um, over this last six weeks. And it's crazy. It's it's absolutely crazy. But people keep asking like, oh, does this mean Nico Miritich is still going to be around the team? I still think that there's an inclination that even as early as this week, we see a deal get done because like I said, the Bulls don't want to be winning games and Nico's helping them win games right now so I just think the situation was very awkward it was a strange time and guys like John Paxson said you know this is the most bizarre situation I've ever been around and that's coming from a guy that choked out his coach in 2009 in Vinny Del Negro so he's been around situations like that before but he said it was the most bizarre thing he's ever seen yeah something you just alluded to possibly a coincidence maybe not in the 
23 games at the beginning of the season that Miritich missed. The Bulls had a 3-20 and record. As soon as he returned, they immediately went on a seven-game win streak. As you said, the Bulls don't want to be winning games right now. Something a lot of people forgot about in the interim was that he did have an outstanding trade request after that incident. He's not eligible to be traded until, I think, uh, this week, probably, right? Monday, yeah. So the 15th, so yeah, that's uh, the 15th is Monday, so yeah. So I guess just talking about those possible trades, what have you been hearing is in terms of teams that the Bulls are talking to or possible returns that you'd like to see? So we've we spent like the entirety of last week, we produced five episodes a week. Um, Matt and I did a series of episodes, one in which we broke down team by team from the Western Conference and team by team by the Eastern Conference. People that would be interested in Nico Miritich. And we had, Matt and I had great conversations between this. We, we tapped all of our resources to from teams around the league to see what the interest level was for Nico Miritich. And the reports coming out l- late last week were that the Detroit Pistons, that the Utah Jazz, first and foremost, were the most interested in that the Portland Trailblazers could also be a team that might be interested in Nikola Mirotic. I think in, in terms of what the Bulls want, and we understand now clearly what the Bulls want in terms of value for Nico Mirotic. And we didn't really understand that before when they were maybe having trade talks, calling front offices up to see what they wanted. So they want an expiring veteran contract that they can take the money on because the Bulls right now are still $15 million underneath the floor, the NBA floor. And so they've got to find a way to use up that money. And the Bulls have a ton, ton of flexibility, which which they they pride themselves off of. Um, that's one of the strong things that they said is that they've got a lot of money to spend, um, willing to take on large contracts or dump contracts in order to obtain young assets or young draft picks. So I think the three teams that I talked about, Utah, Portland, and Detroit, the most interesting out of the three of these teams that I think the Bulls could get a deal done with, to me, is a team like the Pistons. And if you take on a guy like John Luer, who has two years left on his deal, he's 28 years old, he doesn't really fit into the Pistons system. That would be somebody that would be coming over first and foremost, but that would be more of a trade salary dump. So you need to get something more for Nico Miritich. So I would think that there would be a possibility that the Bulls could get a deal done with the Pistons, including Stanley Johnson, which they had come out and said that Stanley Johnson, they were going to try to move. He's only 21 years old. He plays small forward, which the Bulls desperately need somebody to play that wing position. Denzel Valentine, as good as he's been on the offensive side of the ball, he's a killer every night out there on defense. And that's something that's not really, it's not really Denzel Valentine's fault. And I don't like when people, you know, say that his game is terrible, Blake. To me, Denzel Valentine was never a small forward in the NBA. When the Bulls drafted him, I thought the Bulls could use him even to think about playing him in stretches of minutes at the point guard position. In shooting guard position, he's just too small to play the forward position. It's tough matchups for him every night. So getting back to this, the Bulls would acquire Stanley Johnson, John Luer, and a first-round pick. That pick would obviously have to be unprotected, completely unprotected because you're taking on that dump deal in John Luer. Now, will the Pistons be willing to do something like that? That's that's where I'm not really sure because the Pistons, they don't really know themselves what they're trying to do. Can Tobias Harris and Nikola Miritich find a way to 
to coincide together because we know if you look at Tobias Harris's history and if you look at Nico Miritich's history, both don't play the three well. And Nico Miritich, it's obvious right now, he's he's, he's not a, a player that can play the three. He's got to play the four or the five. Um, and for Tobias Harris, he's been strong at the four. So that's kind of a situation where I would be, I would say I'm not sure how well that would mesh. And another thing too, to talk about this Nico Miritich situation in general it's it's obvious. It's very very clear that there is only a handful of teams out there that Nico could go to that he would start immediately, and that's his goal. He wants to start on a competitive team, a team that's going to go to the playoffs. So that eliminates a lot of the situations where the Bulls could get high value for a team that maybe is trying to squeak in as a seven or eight seed. He wants to go to a legit contender. So I think Utah is a situation where he'd be able to start right away. Quinn Snyder is is great at getting offensive like the best out of his offensive talent. I think he'd play well in their system. Um, the Trailblazers is an interesting spot as well. Um, they don't really have a power forward that can come in and score a ton. I think he would complement Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum a ton in that lineup. The Bulls could get a ton back from the Blazers. That's if they're willing to part ways with a contract or a situation like Noah Vonley, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent. That would have to be a throw-in deal. And it's also going back to the Bulls too. Like, do the Bulls really want to take on a Myers Leonard contract for another two or three years at $10 million a year if you plan on trading Robin Lopez? So there's a lot of questions with in regards to where Miritich fits, what the Bulls will get back for him. But I know there was reports about Derek Favors being a possible piece that Utah would move. Like a straight up deal for Nico and Derek Favors makes no sense for the Bulls. So that's not going to happen. So I think the Bulls are going to press really hard to try to get that first round pick from some team and maybe use this interest from a multiple teams to try and leverage some team to give them a first round pick that's not oh, that's hardly protected. Or if there is protections, it's, it's fairly slim to none. We'll be right back with more Bulls Talk after the break. This is Sandy Moy, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. When you talk about the future core to build around for the Bulls right now, obviously as a team in transition, in rebuilding mode, does the list sort of stop after Levine, Dunn, Markinen, or is there... Any others that should be mentioned there, or maybe are those three even too many and anyone's expendable at this point? What's funny about that is we talked, so we talked to ESPN's Nick Friedel about two, about two weeks ago, and we asked him pretty much the same question because for, for Matt and I, for me especially, I think marketing done and Levine are your obvious core. Everybody else is expendable. Everybody else should, if you can get value for them in terms of trade deals, possible picks later on down the road. Um, that's that's really what you're going to try to do. The Bulls are going to try to get as many young assets as they can back. But I think slowly as the season has progressed, I've even thrown in the mix guys like Portis, who they picked up their option on for next year. So he'll be here through 2018. He's played the best basketball he's had in the NBA so far. So I think he can be a legitimate rotation player, um, somebody who comes off the bench. I think the front office is very high on not only Portis, but Valentine. And to throw a third guy in there, a guy that they got because they traded away that pick at the second round to Golden State, which everybody kills the Bulls for in Jordan Bell. But they had the room to pick up David Nwaba 
in the summer as a one-year deal. He was fully guaranteed. I think that's a guy that's going to command a ton of money in restricted free agency this year, and the Bulls should should do whatever they need to do to keep him on board, to pay him the amount of money, to be a guy that can be a legit 20, 25-minute player off the bench because his defense, his energy off the bench is electrifying for the Bulls. And he reminds me so many times, and I'll go back to even the Knicks game, there was a stretch where he was for four or five minutes playing on Doug McDermott and he was just torching Doug McDermott on the offensive side of the ball. He was he was throwing out flashes of of young Jimmy Butler and which excites me a ton for a guy that's, you know, paid $150 to get into the G League tryout and then all of a sudden has gotten to this point with the Bulls. I think Nawaba is also a piece that the Bulls should keep around. So I would say your definite pieces for the future are done Markkanen and Levine and maybe done even if if the Bulls have an opportunity to draft a guy like Trey Young and he's there on the board or even Colin Sexton you have an opportunity to maybe use Dunn as a piece to trade. I don't know how high the front office is on Dunn's future with the team. And that's something Nick Friedel said that, you know, there could be a possibility where the Bulls aren't aren't legitimately committed to Dunn, but they could move him to try and get maybe into that top five if they fall out. He said he's not really sure at this point. But if you had to pick three guys, it would be obviously Dunn, Markinen, and Levine. But I also think guys that are going to hang around this team for long term include Bobby Portis, Valentine, and Nawaba just from what the front office has seen. They all are on really solid, financially stable contracts that benefit the Bulls if they want to bring in a star. So I would say your core right now, Levine, Markinen, and Dunn is a good place to start. It's uh, it's definitely a better place to start than some of these other teams that are trying to tank. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up David Nwaba, who whose contract the Bulls just guaranteed for the rest of the season. As you mentioned, he has sort of a similar story to last season. A lot of people were talking about the emergence of Jonathan Simmons for the Spurs. Similarly, paid $150 to try out for the G League. Nwaba, his journey is interesting. He started out in college playing at a D2 school before transferring to Cal Poly. When he was there, he didn't even make the All-Big West conference team for a low major. Basically wasn't on any draft scouts radar until he went through that G League tryout process. A lot of the young players that you mentioned on the Bulls, you know, this season have really responded to their expanded roles that they've been asked to take on. Two that I want to highlight are Denzel Valentine, who you discussed earlier. He's made some strides. He improved his three-point percentage to 40%. He's pretty much increased his box score stats, at least across the board since last season, both per game and per 36 Justin Holiday, he's been asked to take on a pretty big role. He leads the Bulls by a decent margin in minutes per game, going from about 20 last season, which was already a career high up to that point, to about 34 per game this season. For those three players in particular, can you speak on how they've been able to respond to their expanded roles? Yeah, I think I think if you talk about all three of those guys, it's interesting because this is a conversation that we had before Levine returned. It was it was kind of figuring out what Valentine Holiday and Nawaba's role is going to be on this Bulls team. So you look at it in terms of what Downs Valentine has done on the offensive end. And so this is from Casey Johnson, um, who does a wonderful job of covering the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune. He said um, right before Levine was returning on Saturday, he said uh, Denzel Valentine, he'll handle it because he's a pro, but Denzel Valentine is shooting 40% from three on the season. 
12 for 20 from beyond the arc over the last three games and is coming off a career high 20 points and moved to the bench with Zach Levine returning. Um, It's a tough one. He also was quoted after the game to which I thought this was this should be held in higher regard than maybe some fans will have have it held in in terms of Denzel Valentine's leadership skills and his just his IQ in general is off the charts. So it says, not surprisingly, Denzel Valentine is a pro on his new role. So this is what Valentine said. He said, first off, Zach is a great addition to our team. He's going to make us better. I can appreciate that. All I can do is control what I can control, play as hard as I can when I get in and let whatever happens, happens. I think that's it, it's an extremely cool thing for Valentine to say, especially when he's playing so well offensively this season and probably on any, any other tanking team, he's worthy of a starting role, at least for right now. But I said it too. I said Valentine, I think with his offensive strength coming off that bench, playing with that second unit, I talked about it with Jerry and Grant as well. He didn't play well in that starting role. He moved to the bench, to the reserves. Chris Dunn took over the starting spot. And Jerry and Grant has played phenomenally better uh, with that second unit, controlling things better. Uh, his game looks more comfortable. And so I'm wondering if Denzel Valentine can be that same guy for the Bulls, be that option to score from the three off the bench. It just gives it gives the Bulls so many more options, so many more rotations, so many more uh, matchups the Bulls can use in order to close games out even too. So uh, Fred Hoiberg talked about how Valentine was possibly going to be was going to see some closeout minutes um late in games because he can make shots like that because he's got a high basketball IQ because he knows and understands how to run an offense. He did that at Michigan State. That's what he was touted for at Michigan State. So, I think it's cool for Valentine in terms of what Levine when Levine comes back for Nawaba and for Holiday. For Holiday, I, I think for right now you're going to see him stay in the starter role. He's very he's he's inconsistent and he's a guy that can be a shooter, can be a scorer, and I think if, if you can get a little bit more of a consistency up into the trade deadline, which is only three weeks away. Um, I think there's going to be other teams that are going to maybe be interested in moving Holiday if they can to get another pertinent uh, shooter that can score from anywhere on the floor. I think his role is going to take a little bit of a step back. Um, in terms of David Nwaba, I know I know Hoiberg had talked about seeing what Levine, Dunn, and Nwaba can do in a rotation together and excited about how that could play out as well. I think it's pretty cool that uh, Hoiberg is getting excited about potential roles for all three of these guys, how they're all going to mix and match, how Levine's going to be able to step in and expand roles for these guys and to strengthen them with their greatest strengths and not expose them for their weaknesses. So I think in terms of like roles shaping and twisting and turning for some of these guys like Holiday Nawaba and Valentine, I think it's going to be interesting over the next month or so to see how things transform. If Valentine starts playing well with that second unit, I'm going to be really happy because turning to him as a bench piece now or a reserve piece, um, I think his ceiling could potentially be a six man down the road, maybe two, three, four, five years from now. If he can really expand on being a guy that can come off the bench, score 15 a night and knock down the three at a consistent level, like that clip for the Bulls would be would be surprising and would be probably the most positive thing you could get out of Valentine, especially what you saw in in kind of a lost season last year for him. In terms of the job that Fred Hoiberg's done, keeping in mind everything that you said about how a lot of these young players have developed and how he's had to shift roles around and juggle a lot of pieces, but also keeping in in mind everything that happened last season with the locker room, everything that happened over the offseason, how would you assess or evaluate the job he and his staff has done so far? And in terms of job security, how would you measure, I guess, the temperature of his hot seat? 
I would say for right now, Fred Hoiberg's going to run out that the the remaining of his contract, the Bulls aren't going to pay him to bring somebody else in. Um, from what I understand, Gar Foreman, obviously this was his guy. This is the guy that he wanted. Um, I don't know how how confident John Paxson was when they initially brought in Fred Hoiberg, but uh, Gar Foreman was the guy that I think kind of attaches himself to Fred Hoiberg. Like, look, I, I think Fred Hoiberg in terms of what he was thrown in in his first two years was sort of unfair for Fred Hoiberg um, trying to come in and have to command a locker room full of stars of guys that had tough seasons before that were coming off of a sort of the end of Derrick Rose's era in Chicago, a sort of 40% version of Joakim Noah and then Butler's rising stardom trying to figure out whose team this was in terms of Rose or Butler and then once it was Butler's team bringing in Wade with that sort of ego bringing in Rondo having to control all of these guys and being thrown in a system where it didn't really benefit or play to Fred Hoiberg's strengths as a coach which is sort of pace and space, spread the ball, shoot the three. That for the first two years uh, was not really the case. And it was hard for Fred Hoiberg to play to his strengths. And so now I think we're getting the understanding, the inclination, really we're getting the sights that Fred Hoiberg is a very good coach at coaching younger guys, at developing younger guys. And so having to control the egos of guys like Jimmy Butler or Dwayne Wade or Rajon Rondo was hard for Fred Hoiberg. So I think in terms of developing Chris Dunn's game, developing the strengths of Lowry Markkinen, playing to what Fred Hoiberg wants to play to, I think he's done a decent job this year. And I think he does deserve credit for bringing the confidence back to Chris Dunn and showing out that Chris Dunn is, you know, potentially a, a superstar on the rise. Like it might be way too early to say that, but we're seeing a, a new confidence level from guys like Chris Dunn and Lowry Markkinen and some of these young guys. And the thing is that the thing that these players haven't done since Fred Hoiberg has been here is buy in. And I think guys are buying in in practice. They're buying in in games to what Fred Hoiberg is saying, what Fred Hoiberg wants to do. And I think that's making all the difference. And so if the Bulls, the Bulls writing out this, his contract for the next two years, if they don't see steady improvement, steady growth from this team as a whole, from the young stars that they do have. Um, I think they need, the Bulls do have a decision to make. If things take a turn for the worse two years down the road here, I think Fred Hoiberg is probably gone and maybe Gar Foreman's out the door with him. I think John Paxson's job is secure with the Bulls, but Gar Foreman might be that guy that's sort of attached at the hip with Fred Hoiberg. So it'll be interesting to see over the next two years what Fred Hoiberg is able to do, how he's able to shape this team, especially if they bring in a top five player in this draft coming up. It'll be really, really curious to see how Fred Hoiberg develops, but I think he deserves, he definitely deserves credit for the way this team's played, especially over the last six weeks. Um, once the team goes back to maybe a Robin Lopez list, uh, Nico Miritich list, a Justin Holiday list Bulls team, that's sort of bad. I think that's going to be an interesting spot to see how well these, this team plays again. Also, too, I want to throw this out there for people that might have some worries or concerns about Fred Hoiberg or like Fred Hoiberg. So what happens if the Bulls two years down the road are now at the point where they can sign a top free agent, maybe with a big ego? How is Fred Hoiberg going to be able to handle that? Mm. Do you consider the way he handled 
Butler, Wade, and Rondo last season, do you can, do you play that into consideration of how this team's going to play? So I think there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors when you bring in stars around the league. How can Fred Hoiberg be able to manage a locker room like that? We saw already kind of how that was handled not very well. Um, so it's it's an interesting dynamic. I think Fred Hoiberg's a, re- a really good coach. I don't know if he's the right coach to build this team. We'll kind of see that play out a little bit more over the next maybe year or so. But for right now, he's got guys buying in. He's got guys playing at an all-time high confidence level. So for that, I've got to give him some credit. Just one more question before I let you go. Thank you so much for joining us today, by the way. As of recording time, the Bulls have played in 43 games. So mathematically, at least, we're officially in the second half of the season. What's on your wish list for things you'd really like to see from the Bulls for the rest of the season? So I think what I said at the beginning of the season and people are people can go back and listen to our episodes back in September and October. I told my co-host Matt Peck this. I said, as the roster is currently constructed with everybody on this team, and this was before the Nico Miritich Bobby Portis fight had happened, and they lost Nico Miritich for the first six weeks of the season. I said, This team is not bad enough to end up in that top five slot. I said they've got to make moves to be worse off than they actually are. And he called me crazy. A lot of people called me crazy, said, you're ridiculous. The Bulls are 3-20 and 20 to start the season. I don't think we have to worry at all about how bad this team's actually going to be. You throw Nico Miritich back into the lineup, Bobby Portis starts playing well, Chris Dunn starts playing well, and now you add Zach Levine back to this roster. It's it's a team that is in a position where they, they know now, and especially the front office is very aware of the fact that this team starts piling up Ws, especially later on in the season now that we're seeing. It's not going to be advantageous to what they're trying to do. This roster was constructed to lose, and you never want to say that. And I know that the front office will never explicitly say that, but um, that's what it was made for. This this was a season where the Bulls highly touted any of those top five prospects, so that's where they ultimately want to be. So if it's on my wish list, I want the Bulls to end up in the top five draft. I think if you get one of those guys, it excels the Bulls' rebuild a ton. And so that's why I'm saying I like even throughout the idea to people that if the Bulls do end up with a late first round pick for Nico Miritich, whether it's a pick from Detroit, whether it's a pick from, I don't know, anywhere, San Antonio, or even a Utah pick that's protected. If the Bulls fall out of the top five, I would not put it past them to package any type of deal that would include two first round picks to move up into the top five. That's where I think the Bulls are so heavily favored in that top five guys like Michael Porter and Marvin Bagley and Luka Doncic and um, even Trey Young. Mohamed Bamba and DeAndre Ayton. I think all those guys are guys that the Bulls would love to have on this roster. One of those five, six guys. So if the Bulls fall anywhere between seven and 11 in this draft, I could see them definitely trying to move up. I don't think it scares them a whole ton if they have to draft between six and 10. I think the the top 10 guys are really good, but for the Bulls in terms of what they need, they need a superstar that they can build for the future. And they're going to find this in this loaded top heavy draft. Um, and that's where they want to be. So if I have a wish, list it's to see to see the bulls in the top five in the lottery this summer another part would be to have chris dunn continue to play consistently well take that next step and i'd also like to see zach levine take a neck to take the next step be that offensive driving force that we saw before his acl injury if you can get all really really 
really great things out of those those two guys and complement it with a really amazing um, rookie season from Lowry Market. And I think you've got a lot of stuff going here. I would love them also not to spend a whole lot of money in free agency this offseason. I know they're one of the few teams that has a ton of money to do so. I don't think they will. But um, if I had to put a couple things on my wish list, but the top would be to try to get a top five draft. I think the Bulls must get a top five draft to sort of excel this rebuild up above some of the other teams that are tanking. I said this off air before we started. I love doing these interviews because I always learn so much. And today was no exception. I really enjoyed talking to you, Jordan. Thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This was great.